Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I am Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. Gosh, I just get so pumped up about this one because we talked to the guy, the guy who found Kurt Cobain, who brought Nirvana to your ears. Brought him to the masses. And I don't know how old you are out there, but Nirvana partially raised me. I mean, I think your parents might be a little upset about that, but no, I agree. You know, Nirvana was the most influential band when I was growing up. Well, and we we talk about Smashing Pumpkins, and he has a great story about them. We'll tell you, our, our guest this week is Jonathan Poneman. He is the co-founder of Sub Pop Records, a record label founded in 1986, him and Bruce Pavitt. In Seattle, Washington, they brought you such sounds as Nirvana, Soundgarden, Mud Honey. Now they do things like uh, The Shins. They did Afghan Wigs, Fleet Foxes, Beach House. By the way, I love Beach House. Flight of the Concords. They got into comedy stuff too, like Patton Oswalt, David Cross. I mean, they're sub-pop records. But man. let's just talk about Nirvana. Now, we do, we do go into that. But we're trying to keep the intro short, and so we would just – keep going and say how amazing it is. We'll let you listen. The guy is incredible. Nicest guy. Great record label. Before we do that, John, tell them what they've won. I know you hate it when I do that, but that's all right. We've got a couple winners from our survey out on survey monkey. Remember you can get to the survey at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash survey, but congratulations to Beth Tatum and Brett Hansen. You guys both won $20 Amazon gift certificates. We'll be sending those to you via email shortly. So if you're listening, be looking forward to an email coming from Smart People Podcast in the near future. And uh, just a quick few things. Don't forget, use our Amazon tab for any of your purchases. Connect with us, Facebook, Twitter, all the good stuff. Smartpeoplepodcast.com is the website where we do the posts. 
We are going to get straight to it with Jonathan Poneman, the co-founder of Sub Pop Records, as he talks about the history of grunge, Nirvana, all the good stuff. All right, Jonathan, well, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so excited to talk to you. We can get into the reasons why later, but I wanted to start out and really get a better idea of your personal history and how you got to the point of founding one of the most popular and groundbreaking record labels on the planet. Well, I uh, moved to Seattle, Washington in 1979. I had grown up in Toledo, Ohio, byproduct of the 60s and the 70s as far as... uh, I guess I would be uh, a later baby boomer. (laughs) And uh, I'd always had ambitions, musical ambitions. The desire was to be a pop star or something, something like that. The powers that be, be it uh, my genes or the divine or what have you, deprived me of the requisite talent and good looks. uh, (laughs) I had to scramble for a, second place option. So um, I worked at KCMU Radio at the University of Washington. And uh, it's a community-funded radio station at the University of Washington. There's also uh, a laboratory station for the University of Washington for a number of years, but it had been set adrift in 1982. And uh, some ambitious students took it over and turned it into a a station that had a little bit more of a free-form edge, not exactly free-form radio, but closer to that than what exists now, actually. KCMU has morphed into KEXP. Uh, There were a number of transitions that took place along the line. KEXP was the license is held by the University of Washington, and KEXP was sort of leased out to Paul Allen's organization when the Experience Music Project opened in the year 2000. And uh, it was supposed to be an accompanying radio station that was representing the culture that was in turn represented by EMP. It uh, has continued to grow and blossom since that time. But I digress. When I was working at the University of Washington radio station, I inherited a radio program that was not particularly popular. It was called Audio Oasis, and uh, it was a local music program. And through hosting the local music program, I met a lot of the individuals who would end up being on Sub Pop in our early years, and that was basically it. Who were some of those people that you met? Because you said, so these were bands as they were starting and they were playing on your on your local radio show at KCMU. Who were some of the people that were coming through there? Well, they would rarely play on the radio at that time. The uh, KEXP has a spiffy studio where they can actually have full live performances. We had a little editing room where I remember one time the Violent Femmes came up and did a little acoustic set, but they were almost primarily an acoustic band anyway. So, but by and large, you would have bands come up with this is one to stump the kids. They'd come up with cassette tapes (laughs) 
and uh, actually the kids are enjoying cassette tapes again, from what I understand. They would play these cassette tapes with uh, their music on it, and then we would talk over it and have all sorts of horseplay. <laughs> but um, besides the bands that would actually come up, there were a lot of people who worked at the station who were later involved it uh, in the early years of Sub Pop. But some of the bands were Green River, Soundgarden, the Screaming Trees, the U-Man, Skin Yard, as other artists, but those are some of the better-known bands from the uh, developmental years of grunge. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you're you're speaking of, like, the whole Seattle music scene, really the formation of grunge, which is just amazing, because Chris and I both are, are 30, and we, you know, our teen years, we grew up listening to to grunge. I was a skater, man, through and through, <laughs> chain wallet and all that stuff. <laughs> right on. It's incredible. I mean, when you look back and think about the genre that, I guess a better way to phrase the question, would you say that Sub Pop created the genre of grunge and gave it to the masses? I would say that grunge is a tagline that was coined by Everett True, uh, a gentleman named Jen Jerry Thackeray, who at the time was a staff reporter for a now defunct British music magazine called Melody Maker. And while he is a talented writer, he was also a bit of a lazy writer at the time. And he scanned, he looked through our catalog and he stumbled upon Bruce's description of a Green River record as uh, ultra loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation. <laughs> he lifted the word grunge out of that and uh, blew it up in the article. Wow. Or, or his editors did. But uh, he did not invent the word. Bruce was not the first person to use the word, I mean, in, in that context. But um, as soon as we saw the train leaving the station, so to speak, Bruce and I were quick to uh, jump aboard and uh, ride that grunge train for all it was worth. As John mentioned, the Seattle scene was, was basically the hub for that. And I know you're modest, but you have to admit that you both basically created this idea or, or really, I can't say created, but uh, went in on this idea of a regional sound that I know was kind of goes back to the days of Motown and you created the Seattle sound. How did you discover that and how did you basically exploit that and make it what it was? Well, we didn't exactly make it what it was. It was something that happened organically in Seattle. It's a kind of music that has always found favor in Seattle. There is a popular local radio station a hard rock station called KISW here in Seattle. And it became famous for being the radio station that broke ACDC in the early 80s and late 70s. There's always been a strong hard rock audience in this part of the country. Part of the reason why the music went over so well is because it's great music to party to and because... Mm -hmm. Seattle is oftentimes, you know, it's a geographically remote city, relatively speaking. And a lot of touring bands would miss Seattle because of the costs involved getting up here. It mm -hmm. was just, you'd have to, if you were coming from the East Coast, you'd have to drive across the Northern Corridor. There are precious few places to play between Minneapolis and Seattle. 
just wasn't cost effective. So the end result is Seattle had to create its own entertainment, and that entertainment ended up being noisy, hard party rock. And so all that Bruce and I did was uh, give it a nice package and uh, invest in the marketing a bit, and the rest kind of took off by itself. If Bruce and I had any genius at all, it was a genius of opportunism. <laughs> well, seizing that opportunity is, is the real genius. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if it's a genius so much, but uh, it's a lucky break. <laughs> there you go. Now, I said it prior to recording. I've been waiting so much to talk to you about Nirvana. And I only know from the articles I could read online, but I'd love to hear it straight from your mouth. Kind of how that came to be. I mean, you discovered them, you made them, you introduced them to everybody and they're the band of my generation, hands down. And so I was hoping you could give us a little background on that. Discovering them, was it like, oh my God, these guys are going to be huge. And or how did that go? There's a gentleman named Jack Indino, who is a record producer, who used to play in a band called Skin Yard and uh, has a band called Earthworm now. He's a uh, Producers worked with a number of bands over the years, most notably Nirvana and before Nirvana, Soundgarden and Mudhoney. And he had been the go-to producer, engineer for local bands in a particular musical community, our musical community, in the late 80s. And uh, he used to work out of a studio called Reciprocal Recording. And I used to check in with Jack, not only because he's a bright, personable fellow, but because I was always interested in what new bands were coming up, and he seemed to be uh, the perfect resource for finding out about new music. And so one time I was having a conversation with him, and I said, has anything interesting come through Reciprocal lately? And he basically said, well, Dale Crover, who was then and remains the drummer for the Melvins, came in with this buddy of his who looks like a gas station attendant, but <laughs> I can't really tell you what this music's like because frankly it's unlike anything I've ever heard before there's a little bit of pop there's a little bit of metal and the guy's voice is incredible I said you gotta give me a tape he said I'll do that too sweet and so he gave me a tape and I put in the tape in my little cassette player and the first song was a song called If You Must which ended up being uh, released finally on the uh, box set they did some years ago and the song begins with this, you know, creepy guitar riff and this vocal that sounded almost Tom Petty-ish. It's a very mellow, you know, uh, trancey vocal line. And then in the middle of it, it just, he explodes into this roar and the music ex explodes with it. And by the time I was to the second verse of the song, I was completely blown away. I knew halfway through the song that I was dealing with something that was going to be pretty crucial. So I got myself through the whole tape. I listened to it three or four times in a row. And then I went down to Muzak, the Muzak Corporation, where my uh, soon-to-be partner, Bruce Pavitt, was working. And I said, dude, there is this band. They weren't called Nirvana at the time. It was just Kurt Cobain. And... Um, I played him the tape and he passed it around because a number of Seattle musicians, Tad, Mark Arm, Ron Redzitas from a band called Love Battery, 
all these people worked in the duplication room in the shipping room of Muzak, quite ironically. <laughs> and so I passed the tape around, and people were, frankly, not too impressed. But I knew that this guy had something. I, was, I, I felt it. So I ended up dragging Bruce down to their first show in Seattle, which was as Nirvana. Actually, I don't even think they were called Nirvana yet. It was um, a version with Chris and Kurt and uh, the gentleman for whom the song Mr. Mustache was written, whose name is <laughs> eluding me right now. Good guy, but I can't remember his name. Right. Anyway, uh, it was at the Central Tavern, and there were like five other people in the venue. And after the band played Love Buzz, which ended up being on the first Sub Pop single and on Bleach, Bruce leaned over and said, that's the single. Wow. And uh, after winning Bruce's approval to move forward, I uh, quickly met with Kurt up at a now defunct coffee shop on Broadway in the Capitol Hill neighborhood here in Seattle. And we talked through a record deal and what it would look like and what it would be. And at the time, Kurt was a big Soundgarden fan, which was something that he would later disavow. <laughs> but the reason why he wanted to work with us is because of our being the record label that Soundgarden had chosen to put out its first record on. So that's kind of how the relationship was born. They became Nirvana, I think it was in late 1988, early 1989 can't remember, but um, they had had a number of different names and then a number of different drummers as well. The drummer Chad Channing, who played on the record Bleach, uh, came on at the as soon as they adopted the name Nirvana. And famously, after the aborted sub-pop sessions for what would later become Nevermind, they fired Chad and hired Dave Grohl, and the rest is history. That's amazing. And I was reading somewhere that the recording budget for Bleach was like five, six hundred dollars, some amazingly it was, low. It was six hundred dollars. There's you see, there's levels of dispute about this, which is complicated, but the one thing that is indisputable is that record cost the band six hundred dollars to record. That's unbelievable. I, I reimbursed the band by way of its <laughs> Uh, now erstwhile, or, well, they're all erstwhile at this point, but the gentleman who was in the band for a short period of time, a, a guy named Jason Everman, actually lent Kurt the money to do complete the record, and I, <clears throat> in turn, paid Jason back. But um, that got lost in the fog of history. I can't even picture this. I, I just can't picture hearing what came to be Nirvana for the first time. It's amazing. One of the things I want to ask you is when you sat down with Kurt for the first time or even when you heard them play, and obviously I'm, I can guarantee you got to know him, what was he like? You know, was he – because people listening to his music and being so engrossed in that band, which I don't think happens anymore in music really the way it did then, we have our own – Perceptions, and I was wondering from the inside if you could give us a little peek of his well, mastermind. You gentlemen are you're in your thirties. I am in my early mid fifties. I'm going to be fifty four in a few weeks, and I have a lot of friends who have children who are your age and a little bit younger. And the one thing that we can all agree on is that when you're in your twenties, shit gets crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And when you're in your early 20s, you don't really, you know, if your head's not screwed on straight, chances are it's uh, up your keister somewhere. (laughs) And uh, the Kurt that I knew was a young guy, very ambitious, very smart, very artistic, a keen sense of the absurd and a fondness for silliness, but always ambitious, always keeping his, his focus. His ambitions were not always to be a pop star, but his goal was always to do good work and to be, you know, be acknowledged for he was a modest human being, but he was not modest about his talents. That's not to go and say that he trumpeted them to everybody. He didn't need to do that. But um, he he expected, I remember having a conversation with him, I guess this is best described in an anecdote, <laughs> where we had put out Bleach and it had sold a very respectable amount of records, probably like 30,000, 35,000 records. And at the time, for an independent record and by a debut artist, this was... A remarkable sale, a remarkable sales figure. And he looked at me and he said, you need to give me more money for marketing. And I said, we're giving you a lot of money for marketing and we're having good results. And he said, you don't understand, this record could sell a million copies. Now at the time, I thought he was crazy. <laughs> I mean, not crazy, but I thought that there was something about his misunderstanding of the way the music industry works and You know, and he may have had that misunderstanding. But the fact of the matter is, is the follow-up record ended up selling a million copies inside of a week. (laughs) And it took, you know, the sales of Bleach along with it. So he ended up being right. Wow. But, you know, the person that, again, that I knew was in his early 20s. When he left Sub Pop, he was, you know, a year and a half, two years later, and then... He, of course, passed away when he was at that magic rock death age of 27. Oh, yes. And um, it's hard describing him now because I know that I'm describing a child. Uh, What he would be like now would be the interesting thing, what all those experiences would have shaped him into being. But he was, was I could say, smart guy, very nice guy, very artistic guy and keen sense of the absurd and appreciation of the silly. That's <laughs> kind of what I knew. No, that's perfect. And I, I appreciate you talking about that just because it's, like I said, such a part of our childhood. And it's amazing to talk to somebody who is on the front lines. Another quick question, and it might have no relevance at all, but when I think of late 80s, early 90s rock, the only other band that I feel, in my opinion, holds a candle is Smashing Pumpkins. And so I was yeah. wondering if you ever had any interaction or was there ever, <laughs> a, ch- you know, ever a chance you could sign Somebody them? put you up to that, didn't they? No, I, yeah. I literally have no They're just my second favorite band of all time, L- literally. Where is your radio show based out of? We're in D.C., but we're just a, a podcast on the Internet. We interview all kinds of different authors. Have you ever authors. talked to Billy Corgan? I, no. w- I wish. <laughs> oh, okay. Absolutely not. In the late 80s, I had dated a woman named Lynn Fisher, wonderful person, great photographer. She lived in Chicago. I had met her out here in Seattle, but she lived in Chicago. We had a long-distance relationship. And she would send me music, and there was this one band who had put out a single on her friend's record label 
called Limited Potential Records, and the band's name was The Smashing Pumpkins. And she sent me a cassette tape full of their music, half of which was this kind of wimpy pop. The other half was this kind of shredding guitar rock. And um, I went out and visited her, and we went and saw them play at the Metro. And they were just a little tiny band and, uh, you know, um, tiny popularity-wise. They had a little bit of a, you know, friends and family type audience and uh but they had a huge advocate in uh the gentleman who was the uh manager or the owner i can't remember joe shanahan who to to this day i believe is still at the metro anyway uh so i went and saw them and i thought they were pretty good i got the phone number of bill as he was then known who was working at reckless records and i talked to him on the phone and you know, I was like, I like some of their music, but some of it just sounded like wanky to me. <laughs> and Understandable. Anyway, one thing led to another, and uh, I ended up getting them three shows with Tad and the Afghan Wigs. I love I the Afghan was, Wigs. <laughs> I think the shows were in Seattle. I remember that for sure. Portland. And I think the third show was in Chico, California where, you know, one of the University of California campuses is located. Mm -hmm. And um, they drove out here in a rented minivan, and uh, basically it was an audition for Sub Pop because at the time they had no real record label interest yet. And I remember sitting with them on our roof garden. Sub Pop used to have its offices in a building aptly named the Terminal Sales Building. <laughs> and it was in the penthouse. It was on the again uh, in the eleventh on the eleventh floor on a, a, of a ten-story building. It's kind of hard to explain, but it's uh, think of Spinal Tap. Right, right. Anyway, um, the elevator went up to the tenth floor, and then you had to take the steps up to the penthouse. It's kind of how that worked. But on the tenth floor, there was a roof garden, and I remember sitting with those guys and kind of describing how the label worked and they really wanted to be on Sub Pop because I think Bill working at the uh, record store had noticed you know that we were starting a little causing a little bit of a commotion but I didn't want to work with him and the reason why I didn't want to work with him is because I had every sense that they were going to become enormously powerful or popular but I just the music didn't do it for me. Some of the songs did, mm -hmm. but um, we ended up doing kind of a compromise thing. We put out a uh, single, a 12-inch 12, a 12 single in Europe and a 7-inch single in the States. And then the next time I saw Bill, he was in the basement of the Metro. He was on the phones talking to record labels and management. And, and then he became Billy. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, Bill, Billy Corgan. No, and honestly, I had no idea about that story. I just kind of put Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins in the same boat. And so I was wondering if you even ever kind of came. Yeah, they were they were nice kids. I, I really like them. You yeah. know, um, Billy, when I knew him, was always a gentleman and 
had a good sense of humor, very smart guy. He later ended up getting a terrible reputation, but he's always been kind to me and kind to the label, so I have no malice. I just wanted to switch gears real quick because, I mean, you've been in the music industry for a good amount of time now, and you've seen a lot of different changes. You've been through a lot, and now that we're into this digital landscape, the ability for bands to to self-record and all that kind of stuff – where do you see the industry really going? And then ultimately, where do you see Sub Pop playing a role in all of this? Change is terrible. No. <laughs> uh, Sub Pop's mission is basically what it's always been, which is basically to champion artists that we believe in. How that is done and how it is monetized, if it is monetized, is something that will continue to change as years go by. Right now, it's kind of the inverse of what it used to be. It used to be that Sub Pop had its foot in the door, and people used to come to us to get their feet in the door so that they may eventually have a career in the music industry. Now everybody's foot is in the door, and people come to Sub Pop kind of for a variation on the same theme, which is, you know, everybody can put their music up on the Internet. Everybody can... Right you know, get on SoundCloud and send their music. You can hear your music on Spotify, sell it on iTunes, or any number of internet radio stations or streaming systems. But not everybody has an endorsement that will make them stand above the crowd. And that is where 25 years of doing business plus having a full-service infrastructure comes to the label's benefit because right now you have more and more bands vying for coveted space to be marketed, and many of them are self-marketing, some of whom are doing so with enormous success, others of whom are lost, you know, to anonymity. Sure. In many ways, that's really no different than it's always been. Uh, It's just that Subhop's mission is pivoted from being, you know, a uh, jostling with windmills, being the lone idealist out there who's believing in a band going up against a cruel oligarchical system that allows precious few independent releases to penetrate it, to becoming, you know, a one of many champions of bands that are worthy of being uh, recognized but we do so with added clout based on our level of investment in our artists, mm-hmm. be it financial or you know personal or uh, intellectual, and because we have a, a reputation for doing what we do. Right. And uh, thus far, it's worked out. Whether it will continue to do so is always in question. You know, it's always it's been a question since the beginning of the label, and that's what keeps me interested. Because if it were a foregone conclusion either way, I couldn't be bothered. Right, and I mean, do you guys find that you have to, I guess, act faster because of the fact that a band can post to YouTube and get presence of thousands or millions rather quickly, where it used to be you're passing around cassette tapes in a mailroom, so you know. Maybe somebody makes 100 copies of tapes, so you know that 100 people are hearing this. But now, say, band ABC uploads something to YouTube, and all of a sudden, 50,000 people saw it. Your logic is sound, but the reality is actually different than that, because 
The music industry used to be very simple. You'd have cassette tapes and vinyl. Eventually you had CDs and then you would ship them around the country to distributors who would in turn put them in a retail store. Mm-hmm. You now have multiple ways of listening to music, multiple venues for listening to music. We had a streaming technology, MP3, wave files, vinyl, CD, Pandora, RDO. I mean, there's so many different, you know, bricks and mortar retail. There's so many different ways to hear music and to hear about music that if you are somebody who puts your music up on YouTube and it gets a million hits, that's great and it's great for your profile, but what are you going to do with that enhanced profile? Uh You're going to ultimately find somebody who can do all the other jobs for you because you can't possibly be a musician and deal with the breadth of the music industry as a whole as hmm. it exists now because there's just too many things going. You can you can have a career as a YouTube artist, but I would argue that as much as that format is accessed and as great as YouTube is, you are still dealing with a narrow ribbon hmm. of your potential listenership. It's actually not that narrow, but the money is is still, though there are lots of ways to generate revenue from YouTube sales, there it's it's not enough to sustain a career from what, you know, unless you're Psy or somebody. <laughs> more, more and more people are having that kind of, are having greater success. And I think as the years go by, you know, YouTube's dominance and power will only increase or a YouTube-like mechanism. It may not be YouTube itself, but it's a fragmenting industry. We are uh, in the midst of, I mean, it's not just a fragmenting industry, it's a fragmenting world. And, you know, everything is becoming highly personalized. And that's all a good thing. It's just, again, when when you're dealing with being a musician and having a career and trying to penetrate people's consciousness, and they're all on different devices and getting their information from different resources, it's harder to hit everybody. It's not a monolithic industry. So my thesis is basically that Sub Hop's job is different, but it's every bit as crucial as it ever was. And Jonathan, I know we've gone over a little on time, and I completely respect that it's Friday and you've been busy. I was wondering if you had time for just two more questions or if if you do. Okay. The one question I had, kind of going along with the joke you made about Psy, and I, I completely agree, is do you believe that today the cream truly does rise to the top? Because, for example, I hate, I mean, I loathe Kesha. And she is a star. And it just blows my mind that there's so many amazing artists that are struggling. And then somebody like that, and there are people that like her, I I guess, can make it. So I was wondering your thoughts on that. Um, Do you think human beings are smart animals? (laughs) I don't know. I think that's the perfect answer. (laughs) I rest my case. Yeah. No, that's that's fair. We'll move on. <laughs> you know, the last question I have for you, and it's kind of self-serving, but I think it's also for anyone who's interested in the music industry out there. And my brother is in a band, and it's a fantastic band, and I see what they go through to get, 
you know, visibility and all that. I'm wondering, what is your advice to aspiring musicians, to those who want to make a living and a career off of it, on how to be found, how to be heard, how to turn it into their life's work? If you're playing rock and roll music, you need to have a great drummer, a recognizable singer, preferably with some kind of soul, and you need to have good songs. I know I sound like an old fuddy-duddy saying that, but that is really what I think are the building blocks of a career in rock. If you're doing performance art, it's an entirely different thing. If you're doing playing a different kind of music, uh, you probably should talk to people that know more <laughs> about this different kinds of music. But um, I think the most important thing that somebody can do is to lose their preconceptions and to be willing to try things. And, um, you know, don't be married to a particular scheme, to a particular way of doing things, because as our discussion has revealed, things are changing and things continue to change all the time. And you never know where recognition or how recognition is going to come. But it will if you've got talent. And uh, your talent may not be in the conventional ways of discerning talent. You know, for me, my talent was the talent of being at the right place at the right time. I was never a particularly good musician. I was a fairly good songwriter, but pretty anonymous. But I, uh, I knew a good band when I heard it, and then I turned it into a career. And it's just really people should allow themselves to be able to be taken where life takes them and not be rigid. I love it. That makes any sense. I, no, it does. It's advice for everyone, not just musicians. <laughs> but, And that's fantastic. In two seconds, what album or band or even song should we listen to that we've never heard of? If you can find Andy Pratt's first album, that's a really good one. He was a eccentric singer-songwriter from Boston in the late 60s. He's best known for a one-off single or a renegade hit single called Avenging Annie. And it was on his second album. He later went on to become a Christian singer. Wow. You can find videotapes of him on, on, you know, old tapes of him on YouTube. His song Avenging Annie is a great song, and it was covered on by Roger Daltrey, of all people, on one of his solo albums. It's a hideous version. <laughs> but if you, if you can find Andy Pratt's first album, even, even more excessively, or more, it would be easier to find would be the second one with the aforementioned Avenging Annie on it. The thing is, is that you see him on his YouTube tapes and, uh, you know, you see this old guy playing this kind of lackluster soft rock. But those first two records were genius. Wow. Genius stuff. And he had one of the great unsung, no pun intended, <laughs> voices in rock and roll, if you ask me. Awesome. Awesome. You know, there's a thousand people out there as soon as they hear this going to be searching for that. So I really appreciate it. Jonathan, honestly, thank you so much for your time. I, I mean, really, this is great stuff. It was a conversation I've been looking forward to. And I know that your time is extremely valuable. So really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, man. 
Absolutely. Gentlemen. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a great honor. Thank you very much. Is there anything, I mean, do you want to point our listeners anyway, besides going to uh, Sub Pop's website and checking out the albums that you guys carry? I mean, is there any anywhere else that you want our listeners to go? No, just to our website. Awesome. Well, thank you again. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. All right, thank Jonathan, you, enjoy Take your care. weekend. You as well. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Jonathan Poneman. Got a nice look into the Seattle music scene, the grunge scene. Hope you enjoyed it as much as Chris and I did. I mean, I still can't believe that we talked to the guy that founded Sub Pop Records. I literally, not kidding, had goosebumps during that interview. And it's weird how certain people will touch a chord. And it's just, I don't know, talking to somebody in the arts and... The, the recommendation he gave, what was the name of the, the band, Roach? We'll, we'll put a link to it, but... Andy Pratt, in his first album called Records Are Like Life, it was made in 1969. Chris and I were listening to a little bit of it right after talking to Jonathan and kind of blown away by the fact that this music was made in 69. I mean, it's it still holds the test of time. What was funny is he kept saying, if you can find it, and I wanted to say, but the, he might not have got it as... Don't worry, John, John will find it. Like If it lives on the internet, this kid will find it. I found it, and this entire album that's posted on YouTube only has 1,100 views, somewhere around that range. So you guys are in on a, a gem. As John said, if you want to oh. be a hipster, tell yeah. your friends, go listen to Andy Pratt. And if you're still listening, thanks for listening. But wanted to say, you guys have done just a killer job. I really am humbled by the responses to the survey. Honest opinions, some good, some bad, but taking the time, you know, I think we're over a hundred responses and also leaving us reviews on iTunes again, good and bad, but just really appreciate it and hope that you guys enjoy the things we're bringing. Wait till next week's guest. I mean, I know we keep saying this. We've had people say, stop telling us how great your guests are. But it's just the passion coming through. We'll just say he, the company he founded has changed many people's lives and how they spend a lot of their time, especially John. Yeah, I spend quite a few hours a day at work on the website of so-and-so. Yeah, hope you guys enjoy next week. Hope you enjoyed this week. Please head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Connect with us. Use the Amazon tab. Enjoy your week. And... Keep listening to Smart People Podcast. <laughs>